With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. If you love listening to this show as much as I love hosting it, I think you'll really like the Medal of Honor podcast produced in partnership with the Medal of Honor Museum. Each episode talks about a genuine American hero and the actions that led to their receiving our nation's highest award for valor. They're just a few minutes each, so if you're looking for a show to fill time between these Warriors episodes, I think you'll love the Medal of Honor podcast. Search for the Medal of Honor podcast wherever you get your shows. Thanks. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, we'll hear from Chief Master Sergeant Doug Morell, nicknamed The Legend. Morell was a combat cameraman who accompanied flight crews during missions. It was his job to photograph or film the missions so that the operation's execution could be evaluated afterwards. In this first part of his interview, Morell recounts serving in World War II, including two times he was shot down behind enemy lines. When I started out, I was 12 years old. It seems, it seems kind of funny, but I was 12 years old, and a lawyer hired me as a boy to, uh, to watch this man that, that they had a uh, case against because he was wearing this back brace. And so they put me up in a tree, in a tree house, that is. And I watched him for two days. And finally, he came out there, looked up and down the alley, and then he took his brace off, and then he went in, in and got the uh, bushel basket and dug the potatoes up and carried them away in the bushel basket. And I called it all, and I got $10 for that, and that was my first documentation. Combat, I went to L.A. I went to uh, Art Center in L.A., and I took both motion pictures and still there. And then we, uh, I went into the service, and uh, the Marines wanted me, or the Marines would, didn't want me, Marines didn't want me at all because I, I was had a color deficiency. The Navy didn't want me because I had a color deficiency. So they says, try the Air Force. They'll take anything. So I went there, and uh, they says, oh, yeah, green-brown color deficiency. You can spot camouflages. So they put me right on flying status, and that was a year and a half, almost two years before World War II started. So uh, when the war started, why we... Uh, went up and shot AT-6s, five of them. We went all over the United States shooting those against the backgrounds of all the national monuments and uh, the New York skyline, the Miami skyline, San Francisco skyline. And uh, we went all over shooting this, and then they were used for uh, for recruiting films for, for the Air Force. 
And then from then on, it was just whenever the war started, away we went. I was a combat cameraman. I had one year out as a uh, combat cameraman. I, they put me in glider pilot training. And I had a year of training there. And uh, they folded up the program, which is probably just as good for me because uh, I'm alive today. Uh, when I first went in the service, uh, they sent me to four different studios. See, the Air Force... Uh, was had become pretty technical by this time. The Army, it was the Army Air Corps, and it had become pretty technical, and they had a need for training films. So uh, what had happened was that uh, the need became so great that the studios over here couldn't handle the, the big influx of requests for training films. So the studios sent six Army Air Force officers to uh, USC for training. And then they sent four of us to, uh, how do I say, we uh, uh, rotated between four studios. And we spent three months in each studio. And uh, I couldn't do anything, no camera work, no anything, uh, just sit there and watch. But I learned so much because I wasn't doing anything. I could see everything that was going on. So we had three months at each of the four studios, and then we came back out. And by that time, it was starting to... uh, it was starting to heat up. The war we hadn't gone into the war yet. It was just starting to heat up, and then I went back to uh, over here to to Burbank, the old studios over there, and uh, from then on, that's where they put me back into glider pilot training, and I was trying to get back into camera again, but uh, they did. They finally got me when the glider pilot program folded up. They put us in as as co-pilots on C-47s, and we were ferrying aircraft up to England, well, up to Gander, Newfoundland, and they took them from there. Came back from that, we were uh, put into combat at that time. They sent us in with B-24s, and we went over to Africa and then to Italy. Most of our combat camera work was for operational evaluation. Uh, Now, we were told mostly to shoot the fighter passes and, and watch the fighter passes and see how they'd how they'd go because the Germans were shooting down a lot of the bombers over Europe, see. So uh, we were shooting the fighters and following them. Well, we were in the B-24 Liberator and it's a four engine bomber, open windows on the side, on the sides. That's where we had our station, which was the gunners on right and left gunner. And then we'd shoot out of either window. We were following the, uh, the fighters, the German fighters had come in from the sun and then they'd uh, go through the, the formation. And if they didn't shoot anybody then, why, and a lot of times they would, but uh, they'd go through the formation, then they'd come around, and then they'd hit around behind us where it was out of sight. And then, then they'd come in from the back, and they weren't watching. They were watching for us in the sun. See, they were watching for the fighters in the sun. So after they found this out uh, from our films, we followed them back as far as we could could and we see him turn so we followed him back in again and they were shooting at you all the way so as you're so busy you don't know you don't worry about it you're just shooting so but uh the next day they shot down about 300 german fighters so just because of our films oh i i had a still camera it's a k20 or a k21 and uh and i had uh either the the uh Bell and Howell IMO, which was a, uh, at our time, it was a single lens. And then pretty soon they went to a, uh, to a spider lens on it, a turret. 
And it was a 50 millimeter. We shot 35 millimeter film. And it was a 50 millimeter lens standard. So we didn't have any zooms or anything. We, if the picture didn't fit, we had to back up until it did, see? So, of course, most everything was set on a, uh, on infinity while we were up there. So uh, it wasn't really too much about focusing. But uh, it was very, very short duration. We had uh, 100-foot daylight loads, and uh, it was a hand-wound camera. And uh, you had to, you had your own cranks, and these things were terrible. If you lost your crank, you were out of business. And uh, you'd get up there, and you had probably about 20 seconds, maybe. I don't really remember, but it was uh, around 20 seconds or so of 20, of 35 millimeter film going at 24 frames a second. And you had uh, just a few few minutes. You had about three minutes on a 100-foot roll. So we didn't shoot indiscriminately at everything. We had to shoot what we figured was going to be the best, you know. So it was a lot different than shooting today with a video camera where they can sit there and shoot a million minutes. And <laughs> we had to pick out our shots very carefully and almost anticipate what was happening, so. You had to know what was going to happen. You can't go out there and shoot documentation not knowing what's going to happen. You have to find out what's going to happen. And they'll put you in a position that's, uh, they usually put you in a, in a, what they used to call tail end Charlie, which was on the last plane on the left-hand side or right-hand side of the formation. So we could also shoot these uh, bases that we could see up there, you know, with the still camera. So uh, during the, when we'd go in on a target, the fighters wouldn't come in then, so you had to go down to another camera. It was an old K3B, it was called. It was a nine-inch nine square format and a 12-inch uh, focal length on it. And it's set in the bottom of the aircraft over the rear hatch. So when the bombs drop, and then you go back there and you catch the bomb hits with that. So you're just guessing mostly with it, and you're looking through the side and moving it with your hands. But... Uh, then we also had to shoot bombs going out the bomb bay, which was another thing that was with the motion picture. And that was a little hairy because there's a catwalk that's about this wide and it's uh, out, you're out there, you have a parachute on of course, but even then you don't want to go out there with those bombs. Sometimes they had to go out and kick those bombs out because they were hung up, you know, so. Uh, the cameraman wasn't really, we weren't members of, a, of the regular crew. We'd fly in a different airplane almost every time. So, and when when an airplane got shot down from under us, why I didn't know the crew, so it wasn't so bad that way. A lot of those guys trained together, and when they trained together, why they you know they got pretty buddy buddy, and it was very friendly and close knit crew. But uh, I wasn't involved in that. So when five of them get killed when you're bailing out, you know, and, and I didn't know them. I hated to see it happen, but. Uh, it didn't bother me like it did the others. You know? I had 32 and two halves missions. That was in B-17s, Flying Fortresses, and in B-24s over there, the Liberators. I flew over, well, it was Austria, let's see, Austria, Italy, Germany, France, Romania, Yugoslavia, yeah, that was about it, yeah. Those were bombing missions there, yeah. 
When it comes to uh, being afraid, you're too busy. I mean, yeah, you are afraid. If you weren't, if if you weren't shooting, uh, you'd really be afraid. I think uh, the the pilots and and uh, navigator and and those others sit there that are well, the navigator had a gun, but uh, the pilots sitting there, they, you know, they're they're watching and calling out uh, fighters attacking and everything. I think they had it a little worse than we did because we were really busy. You know, I'd be shooting the gun, shooting the the waste gunner shooting, and then shooting over the waste gun's shoulder, getting the fighter coming in, the fighter coming right over your head, and see the fire belching out of their guns. And uh, see, it's kind of an, oh, no, you know, I wish I were somewhere else, but uh, not really fear. I can't remember really fear uh, during combat because it's so busy. And as long as you keep busy, why you don't really feel so bad about it. You get a rush. Yeah, you get a heck of of an adrenaline (laughs) rush, I'll tell you. Yeah, you feel it. You're not, but see, that's another thing that kind of counteracts fear. You can can, uh, do anything. You're indestructible. You feel like you're indestructible. Uh, If something hits you, it's going to hit you, but... uh, the adrenaline, yeah, when, especially when the fighters come in and you can see them blazing and they're going right over you like that. And the flak out there, yeah, uh, you get the adrenaline. I think there are some people, though, that, that got a blast out of it. But uh, I tell you, you get a good feeling when you shoot an airplane down. You get a heck of a rush. But, uh, of course, you don't see the, you don't see the guy you're shooting that well, one of them. I saw, you know, he'd bailed out and he just went on down. But when you see it, as long as you see some smoke and some pieces of airplane flying off there, you get a rush out of it. You know? Well, when the flak comes up, you really know it. But see, the, f- the fighters are, are your main concern at first. Well, the fighters aren't going to come in when, when the flak comes up. In fact, they'll usually put up a different color flak burst. It had red and black and some white. But uh, they put a different color burst up there so that warn their own fighters not to go in because they're really going to throw a barrage up there. And uh, they throw, the flak goes up there like mad. There's a there's an F, usually a FW-190 sitting off to the side just out of our gun range. And he's flying right parallel with us, and he's radioing down our altitude and our airspeed. So uh, that makes the gunners down below very happy, you know. Makes us very unhappy, but every now and then we'll fire off a burst. The gunners will fire off a burst at that guy, and he'll move away a little. But he still knows your your airspeed and your and your uh, altitude. So uh, they have that. When flak hits, if it hits your airplane direct, you're going to go down. But uh, when it hits uh, near you, it explodes near you. They have proximity fuses. Well, they have it set on the ground for the altitude that that guy out there is, is calling down. So uh, it'll explode up there. They send up this whole barrage, and you can see this black, almost a black cloud all over the target. In fact, we do a, in the bombing runs, they do what they call an IP target run. The IP being the initial point that they will have a certain place on the map that they'll turn over that point and then head into the target. Uh, this way, it kind of sets them off, but that uh, sets it off uh, so that the enemy isn't exactly prepared to come from that way, you know. 
we might be coming this way and go clear around like that and head in like that. So uh, when the IP and target run goes up there, you can see this big cloud and you say, oh, I hope we don't go into that, you know. Bore right straight into it. No change, no nothing. You just go right straight. Airplanes like very severe turbulence from the flak burst. Very severe. And uh, you'll get shrapnel. There's about a 20, 30 foot uh, spread of shrapnel that comes out with those. And it's uh, kind of a, (laughs) there's been some funny things happened in that too, as well as fear. We had one radio man that he says, I'm hit, I'm hit, I'm hit. And uh, what had happened was he left his can of tomato soup in his uh, little, had a little heater, uh, hot cup, they call it. He had it plugged in and had his, and then he put water in it and then put the can of soup in to heat it, see. Well, we got hit by fighters a little earlier and uh, then we planned. So here he is, he, he got this explosion, the can exploded and so put this uh, hot, tomato soup all over him. He thought he'd had it. He said, he's hit, he's hit. That was sure funny. But uh, it doesn't get funny when the guys do get hit. I've had a couple of waist gunners and a tail gunner shot up from from under me, I might say. But he just fell right there by the gun. And uh, you can't can't help him there at that time. You know, you've got to get that gun going or you're going to get the whole crew. And the one I one one of those that I saw there, he was pretty well blown open. He got hit right in the chest with a twenty millimeter, even through the flak suit. So we had flak suits were uh, heavy iron plates and little iron plates about two inches, no, about one inch by six or eight inches, and they'd pack these things in a vest. But uh, you have to take over the waist gun. They uh, when they taught me uh, the gunnery. Guy gets up there and he says, well, this is the gun. I says, well, that's nice. You pull this back. There's a big uh, side on there. He says, well, this is a rad here and that's a rad there. And you do, if you see the airplane out there and you got, he looks about so far away. Then you set this thing over and you put it like that. He says, okay. And that was my training for gunnery. But I did get two ME-109s and a half of a JU-88. So that was, uh, that's in my records. But uh, <laughs> the training, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> when I came back to the States, they says, you're wearing gunner's wings. Well, we didn't have cameraman's wings or crew member wings. He says, you're wearing gunner's wings. It says here you didn't go to school. And he says, you can't wear them. And I says, well, I'm going to wear them, you know. So anyhow, the officer came up, the clerical officer came up. And he says, what well, seems to be the trouble? He says, well, he's wearing gunner's wings and he hasn't had hasn't been to gunnery school. And this is after we came back from prison camp, you know. So anyhow, he says, uh, well, you did shoot guns. I says, yeah, I got, look in there, you see two ME-109s and a JU-88, my record's there. He says, well, he says, just let him go. Don't worry about it. <laughs> they weren't going to let me have wings. Oh, no. The uh, Army was raising hell because we were taken there. The air crews were getting the beds that came over from the States. And here the Army had come back from 10 days in the front lines, and they had to sleep on uh, on the floor, more or less, you know, and straw and stuff. So they had a big hell of a about that. So they took uh, 10 
they took 10 uh, machine gunners, 50 caliber machine gunners from the Army, and they took 10 uh, waste gunners from the Air Force, and they traded places. Well, if they completed 10 missions in the Air Force, they'd give them an air medal. And if they'd completed uh, a 10, a 10 days on the front lines, why well, they'd get a combat infantryman's badge, the Air Force people. So we had this one guy from Tennessee. He came up there. Oh, y'all got it made. You just got it made up here. He said, man, look at that. Just laying around, taking it easy. And we were flying up. This time it was Wiener Neustadt, and it was a pretty rough mission. So we fly up to the IP, and he's looking out and sees those uh, those uh, flak fields I was telling you about. He sees those flak fields, so he uh, says, what's that over there? He says, well, that's an aircraft fire. That's flak. He said, oh. But he said, says, we're not going there, are we? It's about that time we turned right toward it, see. So when that flak started hitting, he he got down there. We had extra flak suits, and he was trying to cover himself up with everything he could. And he got down. When we got back off the mission, he, he well, in Italy, uh, you know, we had these uh, perforated steel plank uh, runways and, and revetments and things. So he found a rock sticking up in, in one of those uh, revetment uh, holes there. And he leaned back and he threw it at that B-24 as hard as he could. And it went right, because it's a thin skin, it went right through it. See, well, left a big dent. He says, you can take your damn uh, air metal and stuff. He says, you can just take it. He says, well, at least on the ground, we can cover up with half of us. We can be on the, on the ground and, and dig in and everything. Up here, you got nothing. We got to keep the beds. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast. First time I was shot down was over the Iron Gates of Romania. They're on the Danube River where the uh, current is so swift. It's at north, uh, eastern tip of Yugoslavia at the Romanian border there. And the current is so swift that they have to have tugs like they do in the Panama Canal. They had tugs to pull the barges up. Well, these barges are oil barges from the Ploesti area in Romania. And uh, that's what the Germans run on is that oil. The whole war machine runs on that oil, so that's why we were trying to get rid of that. We were bombing Ploesti refineries and uh, bombing these uh, routes that they take the oil up to Germany. So anyhow, I, uh, 
uh, over the iron gates, we got hit and we, uh, we lost one engine and then another one was slightly damaged. So we lost power and we couldn't make it back over the Yugoslav mountains. So they, they had a, a safe area, so, you know, all over, they give you these safe areas. So if you're in trouble, you can bail out over there and there'll be either underground or partisans or somebody will help you there. Well, this safe area was only about a uh, half mile around and you had to bail on it out and hit it. So uh, every, they bailed us out two at a time. We weren't, uh, I mean, we weren't uh, burning or anything. We were just, uh, just disabled, couldn't make it back. So we bailed out two at a time. And when they bailed me and uh, the one that bailed out with me, one of the gunners back there, uh, they, the uh, navigator made a mistake and he bailed us out 180 degrees wrong, which put us about five miles away from the rest of them. And, and uh, the rest of them were picked up that evening by the partisans. A C-47 came over from Italy and took them back over. And we spent 26 days walking across the mountains, right across Kosovo, by the way. That's what's now Kosovo. And uh, across northern Albania to the ocean. And then I bribed a fisherman there to take us over to Bari, Italy, across the Adriatic in a fishing boat. Well, Albanian fishing boats are not the sweetest smelling things in the world. And every time that we, we had uh, airplanes come over, why well, he'd put us down in the bilge. And the bilge had fish antrils, fish heads, oil, gas, everything was down there, and it stunk terribly. And uh, and a boat would come near, we'd go down the bilge, and the airplanes were all, always going over, so we were spending a lot of time in that bilge. We got back to Italy. It took us a couple of days to get the smell off of us, but anyhow, we made it back finally. But it was a lot of... A lot of survival across those mountains. When we walked back across there, we, we tried to stay about, uh, I'd say, about 100 yards below the crest of the mountains so we wouldn't uh, silhouette ourselves up against there. If there was a civilized area over there, or I mean, uh, where, where houses were, farms or something, we'd go over on the other side. But we'd also stay on the side so we could watch in case somebody was after us or something. But we'd, uh, we'd make fires in the daytime, never at night. And we always made it with uh, this kid that was with me was from Boston. He'd never been out in the woods before. He's a, strictly a town boy. And he almost got us captured several times. But uh, he's a woodsman now because I got after him. And uh, we, we, we'd build these fires out of very dry wood, never any green to cause any smoke. Very small fires. And only when we needed, uh, uh, we'd snare animals. See, we had our parachutes. So we took the parachute shroud lines and uh, made snares and stuff. So we, we snared a lot of uh, rabbits and things like that. But it was a, still a survival situation. Then you always had to go down and get water. So that was another thing. And we didn't have any canteens. We should have, we bailed out. We should have had our canteen with us when we bailed out, but uh, we didn't. We had our we had taken it off to put the flak suits on. So, well, the second time we were on a on a uh, mission to the Ploesti oil fields, and uh, this is one of the roughest missions in the in the whole war. Actually, a lot of people hadn't heard about Ploesti, but it's in Romania. It's big refineries there, furnishing 
probably 70 or 80% of the Germans' oil for their machines. So oil, gas, everything came from, most of it came from Ploesti. And uh, that was the big raids. And this, this was at a time where we were flying there every day against Ploesti. And it'd be probably maybe a thousand bombers, which sounds kind of large, but it was large. Uh, today we have three or four bombers go, maybe two. And then it was a thousand of them and a thousand, two thousand fighters up after him. So anyhow, I, we're on this mission to uh, Ploesti and uh, we got hit. Well, after we, after we dropped our bombs, we got hit, got hit by flak. And we had to drop out of formation because we couldn't keep up with the formation. Formation's your big protection. You're, you're protected in there because there's all those guns and those you have in a, in any one of the bombers, you have a nose gun, you have an upper turret, you have a, a ball turret down below, you have the two waist guns, you have a tail turret. And so you, you've got a lot of guns there in protection. You take uh, 36, usually 36 bombers to a group and maybe 45 groups, 40, 50 groups going. So uh, that's a lot of firepower. Well, when you fall out like we did, fall, fall out of formation, we turned back. We were going to try to head down for Turkey somewhere because we were 800 miles behind our own lines. So uh, we were heading probably for Turkey. Well, we got hit by about six ME-109 fighters. They came in and racked us and racked us and racked us and racked us and then finally set us on fire. Well, uh, we noticed a couple of the guys up front had bailed out. We could see them down below going by with a chute. So we said, well, we better get out of here. So I says, there was a fire up there. I was, I was going to go out to Bombay, so I opened up the door, and here this big old batch of fire comes out of the door. And funny, first thing I could think of, well, I better get that fire out. So I picked up this little fire extinguisher that you pump like that. I picked it up, and I opened that door, and I looked at it, and I says, oh, no, that's not doing anything. I better get out of here. So I went out, uh, lifted the camera off, got the other two waste gunners out first. And then, and the tail gunner, they all went out. And then I went out, and about two seconds later, why the, the uh, airplane exploded. And uh, you could feel it. I, I was only out a little ways. I could feel the explosion when it went. Might wonder why I was taking care of getting these guys out. This was the first time, that, this was their first mission. And they put me up there once, well, usually, they put me up there for as an old troop so I can kind of watch what's happening. And in case, uh, just like this, in case like that, I know what to do. So we got these guys out. I went out blue. About, uh, I delayed probably to about 11,000 feet. We were about 22,000 feet when we were hit. So I delayed to about 11,000 feet. I could hear this motorcycle coming up when I opened my chute. A little while later, I heard this motorcycle down there, and here it is over flat wheat fields in Romania, in southern Romania. And this motorcycle's coming up the road, and uh, he looked, I, I looked down at it, and it's headed right for me, you know. So it's a head of sidecar on it. So I pulled down on the right-hand risers, right-hand risers, and it shoots me over. This spills the air out like that, shoots you over about a couple hundred yards. And I looked down, and he parked over there and parked right under me again. So I went to the other side. 
spills the air, it goes over there about two, three hundred yards. He starts up the motorcycle, goes over there, back and forth. And so when when I hit the ground, they collapsed my chute for me and had guns on me. So I wasn't about to evade that time. But uh, it was a German uh, Luftwaffe officer. And uh, he took me, was kind of worried. Down, They took me down in the, in this motorcycle. I was in the sidecar. And the the sergeant was on the uh, on the motorcycle driving, and the lieutenant was behind him. So he gets my parachute, folds up my parachute, and sticks it in the back of the of the. Well, it's kind of a back compartment on the sidecar. They take me over to the uh, this guy's girlfriend, and she happens to be a Romanian, and speaks perfect English. And uh, when she first saw me, you know. And he told her I was a downed airman. So she says, uh, you're very cruel people. I says, well, why, why do you think we're cruel? She says, well, we know that you're released prisoners from Alcatraz and Sing Sing and that you get $1,000 for each mission that you fly over here. I says, well, these guys are going to owe me about $30,000 because I've never heard of such a thing. And I tried to put her straight with that, but the German propaganda machine had, had told them things like that so they wouldn't have any uh, feelings for us, you know, sorry, being sorry or something. So anyhow, I, we had some pretty nice, had some cold lemonade and some cookies, and then they took me into uh, Bucharest. Well, they stopped outside of Bucharest, and then they picked up another one of my crew members. They made us walk in. And they're walking under the Romanian guarded in the daytime, the Germans guarded at night, but they put us under a German guard and walked us through the streets. And the people are spinning at us and hollering at us, and they're uh, throwing anything they could, trying to get in and kick us, everything else. We didn't know if we were going to get through that or not. But they took me to Romanian headquarters, uh, the Luftwaffe headquarters in Romania. And... Uh, Got me. They found a, on. They searched me and found a a a frame rate calculator on my in, in my flying suit. So they knew I was a, a cameraman. Well, they also knew cameramen were working under intelligence. So here I am, supposed to know a lot of stuff. So they keep me in there. They they keep me in the place. The guy says, a colonel came in. He says, "What are you doing here?" I says, I'm waiting for my buddies to pick me up. He says, oh, you think they will? I says, well, they'll be over any time. Looks like they already got you. He had a cane, and he, he he was a pilot. He had a cane, got shot down the day before. So he motioned to this guard over there, and the guard came up and whapped me in the face right across here like that with the butt of a rifle, loosened up all the teeth and, and uh, shifted the nose around a little. <laughs> so... I learned not to smart off anymore. Then they put us in prison camp. We stayed there for four and a half months till we were released by the Russians coming in. And, uh, of course, we went around town for a long time, had a ball, really had a good time because, uh, you know, after we were released, because they said that they didn't, uh, they didn't want us to be held prisoner like that. They, they, they just had to because the Germans had to, made them do it. So anyhow, they tore the Bombays out of uh, about 
six or seven uh, B-17s, Flying Fortress, put plywood in the bottom and uh, came over and picked us up over there. I was in the last plane going out. It was lucky they found me because I was having a ball around town. So <laughs> Bucharest. We were in a prison. The prison camp was a hospital area in Bucharest. So anyhow, we got back to Italy and uh, debriefed. Then they sent us back to the States. I had some friends in, uh, in prison camp with me. Some, there was four or five cameramen in that prison camp with me there in Romania. <laughs> See, they, if it's important enough to document, it's important enough to defend, and that's one of the reasons we get caught. So, Take four or five of them. That was, we only had about 15 or 20 working over there. We never even got to see some of them. And we're always going back and forth between these different bomb groups where they know this bombing raid is going over a particular place. So they know something. They check the route they're taking. And if they see something they want uh, documented, why they'll do it. In prison camp in Romania, I was, uh, I was terrified for a while. I didn't know what was going to happen to me. And they had me in a uh, one-meter square box and uh, kept me in there for days at a time and then dragged me out. That's because they knew I was a cameraman. They knew I worked for intelligence, and they thought I knew something. So that was the Germans in Bucharest at the Luftwaffe headquarters. And they kept me in a, this box in the basement, and every five or six days they'd bring me out and, and uh, interrogate me again, but I still didn't know anything, so. Finally, they put me in prison camp with the rest of the guys. So. But I spent the first 30 days there in uh, Luftwaffe headquarters. The guy that captured me uh, with the motorcycle and the thing, I, when he walked around behind that thing, he took out his gun and checked it and walked around behind me. I says, oh, oh, oh. I was not really terrified. I can't say that. Maybe I'm just too easy going to get terrified. But... Uh, no, but I get, see, there's nothing to worry about ever. Because uh, if you, the only thing you have to worry about, somebody's got a gun up to your head and ready to pull the trigger, then it's a time to worry, but it's too late then, so what the heck. So why worry beforehand? I think prison camp did me a lot of good because I just don't worry about anything anymore. It doesn't do any good. Uh, we have a, a Romanian POW, well, it's called uh, Former Prisoners of War in Romania, organization. We have a, a, a reunion every year, different place every year. Like this time it was at Philadelphia. Last year it was down at Newport. Next year it's going to be in, in Phoenix. So we have a baller, but they're getting less and less and less all the time. But uh, the cameraman... In fact, I don't, I don't even remember any more cameramen still going to that reunion. Uh, people wonder what good documentation is. What, what good does it do shooting these pictures? Well, I saw at Wiener Neustadt, I was looking out the waste window. We were bombing a, a Messerschmitt factory there. I was looking out the waste window, and in the, in the woods out there, I could see this regular shape like a building out there, like a factory building or something. And yet out here in the open was, was a factory building, it looked like. So I says, I know there's a factory building there because 
Well, with migraine brown deficiency, if a tree is dead for, for three or four hours, it shows up on me. I can tell it right off the bat that it's, it's not, not a live tree. So this was a camouflaged area, and it turned out uh, they didn't believe me. So next day, I took infrared camera with me. I had to readjust the focal length on the thing and everything to take infrared film, but we did have infrared film. So I shot this uh, Messerschmitt factory, What I this area I thought, and they took it back, and oh, man, they got all excited. It was just exactly like I said. So here, here's about 7 or $8 worth of film at that time. One guy's salary, which was about 150 bucks a month or something at that time. And uh, I got got a whole Messerschmitt factory to my credit, see. Well, nobody did anything for it. I, I never got anything out of it, but I did. they did go out and bomb the right place, and that helped a lot. But the Germans had put this all this fake stuff out there, and we'd bomb it every now and then. I wondered how they built it up so quick, and here it was all canvas and everything else. So another time we were going up uh, across Venice, and I I saw down in the, along the shoreline there, I saw what looked like a couple of submarines in there. So I shot, I always took my uh, infrared camera after that. So I shot these two submarines down there and it didn't look like it. I told one of the waste gunners, I says, look at that, you see that sub bend down there? No, where? And uh, anyhow, I shot it with the camera the next day and got the coordinates from the navigator to say where it was. And the next day they sent out a wimpy and got two of those things, so I've had Two submarines, a Messerschmitt factory, two ME-109s, and a JU-88, <laughs> to my credit. Uh, but uh, there's documentation for you. It can be used for operational evaluation. Even in that case, it was used like reconnaissance. So it's very, very important. Besides, where would you get these good pictures of World War II if you didn't have us guys? When you see an airplane blow up and everything, it's, it's not that bad as you see a guy blown apart down on the ground, see? Well, there was a lot of that stuff that combat documentation did too, so the guys on the ground. And uh, a lot of that wasn't released for quite a while until they finally says, well, we gotta get these people jolted to see what this war is like. So they started showing bodies and started showing them all torn apart and everything. The combat documentaries that we see now, uh, could you just imagine not, not having those around anymore? People say, well, what do we need all that for? They'd say, actually, sometimes when I, they'd, I'd go to the briefing and they'd say, well, you're having a cameraman. Oh, what do we need a cameraman up there for, you know? And uh, it really ran that way uh, a lot of times. They, they don't want it until, until afterwards. They say, well, why didn't you get pictures of it? But they never think of planning it in there, except intelligence did, because intelligence needed that stuff. But uh, it's very important, but histor historically, it's uh, invaluable, just priceless. And there's a lot of it there. A lot of it they've taken, uh, most of the best has been taken and done over and over and over again in films. Most of the best. Well, you don't want to show any of the stuff that's no good. But uh, it's very, very important uh, to have the people realize what the heck's going on. We've never been bombed. We've never had a war over here after a civil war. And uh, 
a lot of the people, they really need sometimes. I think one of the best things that happened is when Saving Private Ryan came around. That, that really helped a lot. People say, my God, did they have to go through all that during the war? It's too bad we didn't have uh, audio with it. That would have been something. That was Chief Master Sergeant Doug Morrell. Next time on Warriors in Their Own Words, we'll hear about his service during Vietnam and how he was shot down a third time behind enemy lines. Thanks for listening to Warriors in Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rolhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.